Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I always am grateful when Pastor Marcus likes to leave me the hard passages. Um, (laughs) This is a feel-good passage that will focus our attention on all the wrongs of other people and uh, none of our own. And so, uh, yeah, so... uh, Thanks, Pastor Marcus. But no, I'm grateful that he and Wendy and the kids are able to get away to recharge and rest a little bit. That's always important. Um, Just so you know, when he goes to Kenya, that's not a vacation. Um, It's hard travel, great people, hard places, and a a lot of work. And so them being able to go to the beach for a few days is a grace to them and also a gift to us that our pastor and his family get to recharge and come back refueled and ready to go. And so we're glad to have that. And so I'm honored to teach through this passage. Um, And so with the Spirit's help, I hope that uh, we will be able to see uh, what the Lord is teaching us today. The main point I want us to take away from this passage of Scripture is that the power of Jesus is our only hope during times of difficulty. The power of Jesus is our only hope during the times of difficulty. I love it when preachers say these kind of broad statements Right, and it's just kind of ethereal, and you're like, oh, the power of Jesus. What does that mean? And so what we'll do in this passage, we'll see what powerlessness in faith looks like, and then be able to see the work of Jesus and what it's able to produce as an inverse. And in order to understand this passage, because you'll notice in the English translation we have in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with the word but, which is a contrast. So in order to appropriately contrast it, we'll look at Paul's writing to his disciple Timothy and understand that this is the uh, final instruction, if you will, from Paul to his disciple, to his trainee, to someone that he has brought up in the faith and ministry. And so he's giving him these instructions on how to continue on to press on in the faith We're going to pick up in verse 14 of chapter 2, just going to read it to get a running start so that we can see the contrast that we'll be digging into today. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Phileas, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So this is how we then should live because of we, because of the fact that we are in Christ, we turn away from these things. We don't give ourselves to these ongoing distractions of words and, and controversies and thinking and, and chatter. And he goes on to say in verse 20, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So just let me paraphrase that for you. Grow up, mature, 
Not just physically, not just in chronology and age, but also theologically, emotional maturity. Have you ever seen someone in their 60s act like a child? Don't point. He's saying in love, because of Christ, we have permission and power to grow up. I still have pockets in my life that require maturing. There's still parts of me stuck as a teenager. I think things are funny that I probably shouldn't think is funny more being in my early 40s. Probably be the same way in my 60s, but then we just think it's cute. Right? It's like, well, he's just old, you know. Uh, That's just the way he is. But we don't want to hear that for Christians, right? Well, that's just the way they are. That's a hopeless statement. Christ doesn't check out in your transformation once you hit a certain age. In fact, he may double down as you age. We're not done yet. That's why we come back here on Sundays. That's why we gather in community group. We're not done yet. That's why we have conflict and reconciliation. That's why we confess when we make mistakes. That's why we're vulnerable in community with one another. And Paul's instructing this young pastor, hey, Grow up and have nothing, in verse 23, nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Have we had any controversies lately in in our culture? And have they bred any divisive quarrels? Especially online. We're so courageous behind a keyboard. And and he's, he's speaking to the church, by the way, not just hey, Americans, or hey, Europeans, act right. He's saying, hey, Christians. Have nothing to do with that. That, That's not productive. It's not helping. As a Lord's servant, be not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So the Lord is mindful both of those who call upon his name and those who oppose him. He hasn't given up or checked out. He hasn't been defunded. He is continually reigning. So we get to our passage this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, Abusive, and the the original language is blasphemous. Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, also known as unforgiving. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. Just a, a comment on Jambres and Janus. Uh, that comes from Jewish tradition that those were the names of the magicians that confronted Moses that were Pharaoh's magicians. So if you go do a word search in your Bible, you may be hard-pressed to find that. So you have to look at history to understand what's going on. And just in the same way they gave this illusion of power, they really lacked it. They were illusionists that could easily distract or betray what was true but at the end of the day, they had no power. And so Paul is speaking to false teachers, but he's also making a global cultural evaluation. And fortunately, we can talk about those people. Those people. First thing we see in this passage, unfortunately for us in America, we have to understand there will come times of difficulty. One of the unique ways I think Christians can live out our faith, and by the way, I love our country, so I'm not like dogging America. I'm very grateful to be here. I'm not anti-America. I'm for our country. But I think we're compelled to be for Christ first. Because I don't know if you know this, America's not that old. And Jesus has been around since the foundation of the earth. And before that. Don't worry, I was getting there. And before that. Right, so we're for Christ first. But what I can speak to, because I know it best, is our culture. I know American culture pretty well. I know Texas culture real well, because I've lived here a long time. I know the Houston and surrounding areas culture even better. And I've been in Brenham long enough to make some observations. But also, these are human observations as well. There will come times of difficulty. It's shocking to me how many believers are offended including myself, when hard stuff happens. It's inconvenient, it's frustrating, it could be painful, and we, quite honestly, at times, are shocked when things don't go our way, when things that are meant to work don't work, when people who are supposed to obey don't obey, when people don't do what they're supposed to do, we get frustrated. I just want to remind us from the Word of God, from about Genesis chapter 3 on, Things don't work as they should. And in these last days, following the resurrection and ascension of Christ until he returns to make all things new, things aren't going to work the way they should. So it, I just want to remind us, the last days will come times of difficulty. But in this passage, what we notice, the times of difficulty specifically here aren't marked by um, plagues or pandemics or uh, earthquakes or floods, the primary definition of these times of trouble being spoken about in this passage have to do with misplaced affections. So these times of troubles begin with misplaced affections. We were created by God for a relationship with God to be fully satisfied and enjoy God. But from the earliest point of humanity, we began to believe that God was not enough and that he had been holding out on us, and so we go after our own way, leading to alienation from God. And the alienation from God leads us to have misplaced affections that then provide alienation in other ways. 
And so Jesus Christ, good news, before I double down on the bad, is that he came to live a life not giving in to that temptation, but rather obeyed God to the point of dying on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sin, being crushed and killed and buried. And by God's power three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that whoever believes in Jesus will be forgiven and accepted by God. That's good news. But in the last days, there will be times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. This misplaced affection begins with lovers of self. Now, you might be thinking, well, Casey, doesn't the Bible teach to love God and love others and love our others as we love ourselves? Yeah. Jesus said when he asked what was the greatest commandment, he said, love God with all that you are, and the second is just like it. Love others as what? You love yourself. Do you know what your greatest need is? Jesus. So when we love others as we love ourselves, it has to foundationally and fundamentally begin with our understanding that we're not alone in our need of Jesus and every human being around us needs to know him and know the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ and the acceptance of Christ. And from that, that doesn't alienate the need of self-care that we take care of ourselves and get healthy and grow and mature so that we can fully enjoy the love of God and the love of others. That's the point of liberation and freedom that the gospel provides. That's what God has created us for and is redeeming us for. So yes, we are called to love others as we love ourselves, but what, what's happening here is this misplacement of affections is placing the, the person, what you see in the mirror, first. So that you're more concerned about how you experience life and how life experiences you rather than aligning yourself after the one in whom created you. And so you're in turn worshiping the created thing, yourself, rather than the creator. People have become lovers of money. I don't know about you. I prefer having money against not having any. But it's the same thing of having fuel for my car or not having fuel for my car. I prefer to have some gas in my car than no gas in my car. Becoming a lover of money is essentially going out to your garage and bowing down to your gas tank. Money is fuel. It's a gift to survive and to live and to thrive, but also to bless and to encourage, and to help. The challenge for me, as I battle my own love of money, because we are in a culture that likes it, right, is that when there's a misplacement of affection, I start looking at my bank account or my assets or my businesses as my hope, as my security, as my safety, as my status, as my worth, I struggle. I'm sure I'm the only one here. Let's make it all about Casey. And some of you are like, nah, money's not a problem for me. I don't have any. But I sure wish I'd have some, right? I mean, there's this drive. And it's not wrong to have things or to make money or to spend money, but when that becomes the primary motivation, the misaffection and misplaced affections where you're putting yourself over others. And, and, and so Paul's saying, hey, they're going to be lovers of themselves, all about themselves, all about um, money and what it provides. Most people love money for two reasons, power or safety or security. 
a sense of power, which is a false sense of power compared to the power of God and who he is, or a false sense of security. That's typically the root of that. And what's, what's, what's feeding that? Self. Again, let's talk about all those bad people out there. Man, they're horrible. But these misplaced affections, this lover of self, lover's money, leads to the second thing we see in this passage, is that misplaced affections lead to broken relationships. What we see in this passage as it unfolds is that it's not just, uh, hey, we're doing bad stuff, but our sin leads to broken relationships. Greed and power and the false sense of security leads us to stop relating with each other and we start transacting, we start using, we start seeing what we can get. Our, our favor toward someone is contingent based upon what value they add to us. But even before the broken relationships with other, we see here it begins with a broken relationship with God. It talks about they're abusive and literally the Greek is they're blasphemous. They say false things about God. They make false promises in God's name. They, they say things about God that are not true. He also lists that they're unholy, meaning that they are anti-God's ways and all about theirs. Their motivation, their purposes, their identity, their activities are ungodly. They are unholy. They're not loving what is good, right? It, it's, if it perceives good for them, it doesn't matter if it's good for you or not. Again, the love of self. And so they become the final determinant of what is true and not true based upon what they determine is good. Lovers of self, not loving of what is good. Remember, the fundamental person that gets to determine what is good is God. Why? Because God is good. Guess who also gets to define love? God. Why? Because God is love. Guess who gets to define justice, righteousness, holiness? I don't have to fill in that blank, I hope. And if I do, feel free to talk to me after the sermon. But there's these broken relationships with God, and, and that's a fundamental relationship. If you want to have right relationships elsewhere, this is the first and foremost relationship that needs to be rightly aligned. If you do not yet have a relationship with God through his son Jesus, your relationship is broken. And out of that broken relationship, you can never really truly love God or love yourself in a way that is helpful or holy or right, but rather you just view people as objects or people to use. Now hear me, you might be thinking, Casey, look, I know people who are not Christians and they don't think that way. Really, every other religion or philosophy has the human being as the ultimate one that determines their fate. Only the Christian faith determines our eternal destiny, not based upon our own activities or works, but based upon the work of someone else. Every other faith and philosophy is about your performance, being a good person, being a nice person, being a faithful person, being a generous person. But compared to what standard? What is that standard that you must match? Well, I'm a good person. Well, compared to what? Compared to an axe murderer? But have you ever had anger towards someone else and un being unwilling to forgive? You've committed murder in your heart. Well, those adulterers are horrible. Have you ever had a lustful thought or feeling about another person that wasn't your spouse? You're guilty. 
And I love thinking about all these people in my mind in my life who do all these bad things. And they're not loving good. They're lovers of pleasure rather than God. Fortunately, I don't struggle with that. I'm not after pleasure. Those people. But this is what's scary to me. There's this one little line in here that I think should cause all of us to pause, both individually but collectively as God's church. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. If the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I as followers of Christ, what is God not able to do? And let me change that. Since the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I who know Christ, what is God not able to do? Can't wait to point out all those other people who need that transformation. We can think of a list, but perhaps we need to pull out the mirror first. What's that thing that you've just grown in your life to accept as that's just the way it is, at least I'm not doing blank? Where's the power in that? And I think we equate power in the faith now to do a good thing or to not do a bad thing. But if you think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, I probably missed one because I'm not singing a song right now. Faithfulness. See, I forgot that one. Thanks, Samuel, Mike. That's the work of the Spirit in us. I have to look at us and say, where's the power to overcome differences? To be generous and not stingy. To be sacrificial rather than self-preserving. To be willing to admit when we're wrong because ultimately the judgment no longer falls on us at the end of the day. It fell on Christ on the cross so we can say, I was wrong. And don't get me wrong, I hate being embarrassed. Embarrassment is often a trigger sign that shame and self-focus are at work. I literally have to say now when Steph and I are having a conflict, I'm sorry, I'm just embarrassed right now. Because otherwise I get really angry and finger pointy. And again, I'm not trying to make this the Casey show. I'm trying to say, hey, we all still need to grow up some more. We're not done yet. Where's the power? Where are the people who are far from God being restored to God through the gospel of God? Where are the addicts that are becoming liberated from their vices into freedom in Christ? Where are the people that are addicted to pornography who are now living in fidelity and faithfulness? Where are the chronic spenders who no longer have to consume because their foundation and security isn't in their possessions? Where is the wealthy person that is able to give generously and and not fret so much about having a storehouse full of everything while people around them are perishing? How is it that anyone could be hungry in the city of Brenham? How could it be? 
How could it be that there's still people around us in our town and in our city surrounding us that haven't heard and understood what the gospel of Jesus really is? We say they deny Christ and they reject the gospel, but have they ever really been shared with it? That didn't make sense. Have they ever had someone share with them? Sometimes I make complete sentence in my head and it doesn't come out fully. If the church is powerful and the gospel's at work, why do 50% of couples in the church end in divorce? Where's the power? He said they, they have a sign that's an appearance of godliness. They can act right when they need to. They do religious things, but denying its power. You know, we can change. We can be different. We're not finished yet. What defined our past doesn't have to be the story going into the future. We allow our past and our failures of our past to be the defining work of our story moving forward. And the gospel says that was a chapter. And that becomes an illustration of my power and my grace. That doesn't have to be the rest of your story. Those changes that need to take place begin on the inside, working itself out. It begins with a broken relationship with God. We act godly as if God's shocked when we actually slip up, when don't we know that he's able to see our thoughts and know our motives and to see our best days and our worst days? And don't we know that anything good that we have in our life comes from above? That when we're actually patient, when we probably normally wouldn't be patient and we're actually forgiving when we're not inclined to forgive and we're actually generous when we're inclined to be greedy, isn't that evidence of the power of God taking root in our life? Isn't the evidence of the power of God in our life when the habit that we've given ourselves to since early adolescence no longer is what has hold on us? We can actually say because Christ died and rose again and the power of the Spirit, we're able to say no? That begins with the relationship with God and understanding the power of God that was gifted to the people of God for the purposes of God through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. But in addition to broken relationships with God, it begins with a broken relationship with God. It leads then to a broken relationship with ourselves. Putting yourself in a position to be God-like is a position destined to fail. And not just short-term, but eternally. When it all rests on your shoulders, when it's all up to you, when you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, when you're a self-made man or woman, when you've done it all yourself, that's actually a broken relationship with yourself. Here's the good news for you. You are not God. I am not God. Thank God. Thank God. We may have some God-like qualities because we resemble our Father, but that's merely a reflection of who He is and reflective of His glory. Right? I, I think we have to understand that without self-control, which is an illustration of what Paul's talking about here, part of the list is without self-control, swollen with conceit, proud, arrogant, ungrateful, discontented, never enough, give me more and more and more. And he's talking about people in the church. This isn't like out there, y'all. He's talking about y'all, y'all. 
in me, y'all, the teachers of the word. When we don't have self-control, when we're swollen up with conceit, self-consumption, we become proud and, and, and our egos get bigger and our embarrassment increases and the shame, guilt, and fear that is within us holds, holds us hostage and, and we can't bear it anymore when someone exposes our flaws and then we rage at our kids when they point out our flaws. Or we point out theirs. Don't we love gaslighting each other? Hey, honey, you forgot to do the dishes. Well, you did this back in 97. (laughs) Back during the war. I mean, we do that. It's a broken relationship with yourself and placing too much responsibility on you, trying to be God when you were never created to be God. And, and that broken relationship with God leads to an elevation of self. If you're following a religious pattern that it, the accounting of whether you're profitable or in the negative is based upon your own endeavors and actions, and ultimately you're the final judge of it, that's a dangerous religion to be a part of. Because either you'll never win or you think you're winning and you're not. Now I can start the sermon. Just kidding. We're halfway through. Here we go. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with self, and broken relationships with others. It says they're disobedient to their parents, positions of authority. They're slanderous, saying false things about people to make themselves appear better. They're brutal and treacherous. They, they are looking to cause harm for their own gain. They put others down so that they look better. They say things that are false so they appear stronger. They're willing to point out everyone else's flaws but never own any of their own. Their broken relationship with others. If you think about war, if you think about the bad things that happen after a natural catastrophe, guess what? It comes from a broken relationship with others. People taking advantage of others. People making themselves out to be God. People not acknowledging God and, and, and following his commandments. These are evidential things that happen that are ultimately around broken relationships. Wars. Broken relationships. Paul's warning in the last days there will be carnage of broken relationships based upon the things he had just warned Timothy not to be a part of. Irreverent babble, fighting over these different conspiracies, having such strong preferences that as Christians we make them out to be convictions. I love when people, and that's sarcasm in case you're not picking that up, when people come with their conviction with extra biblical foundation to prove why someone else is wrong and why they are right. I literally, when I was pastoring at my last church, had someone come to tell me and said, hey, I, can you please not tell anyone in our church, but I voted democratically. And I said, what? He said, yeah, man, our church, like, I think I would lose fellowship here. It broke my heart. It broke my heart. We're all on a journey. We all have the way we view things. But it's easy to allow things like politics or economics or education or family planning 
or types of TV shows or music or movies or types of vehicles or amount of money to have or the type of house you live in to cause these divisions. But a lot of those things may use wisdom from God's word. But just don't we understand that our behaviors and patterns and habits are often symptoms of much deeper heart issues that come from a place of trying to mend the holes from a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with ourselves, a broken relationship with other people? That our outward displays of, of sinful patterns of behavior or sins of omission come from a place of deep wounding and deep loss? That only Christ is able to really heal? But we allow our preferences to come in to part, portion people in the kingdom out because they believe this or they've had this or they've done this or they don't believe this or they don't do that. And we start judging people based upon preferences and behaviors and then we throw a little Jesus juice on it and then we call it conviction. I'm guilty of that. But don't we understand that we're called to biblical community and not biblical affinity? Affinities, we all look alike, vote alike, think alike, everything else. And we've forgotten how to sharpen each other through disagreement and sit with each other and reason with each other and to have different theological views and hammer through it and with love and affection not to win, but because we've already been won. These broken relationships, it's, it's broken family relationships, it's, it's saying things about people, it's being brutal in the way we interact with other people, it's treacherous, it's slanderous, it's tearing people up, not with a heart to go out and restore, not hoping and trusting in the power of Christ, but hoping in our own ability to shame, guilt, or fear someone into the kingdom. Verse 9, and we'll end here, is this, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Talking back about the magicians who were coming up against Moses. Third thing we see here is times of difficulty reveals the true state of one's faith. We can say the right things. We can act the right way. But it's really in times of trial and these difficult times when we're interacting with those who have these broken relationships with God, broken relationships with others, broken relationships with themselves. When those people, we interact with them, that really tells us what is it that we believe. And perhaps one step towards maturity is as we interact with people who have this display and this pattern of behaviors, before it brings up in us a sense of condemnation, perhaps it should bring up a sense of of humiliation, that we're humbled. That, but if it weren't for the power and grace of the gospel of Jesus, we too would go that way. When Jesus talks about take out the plank of your own eye before you go after a speck in your brother or sister's eyes, perhaps the next time we're confronted with someone else's arrogance or treachery or blasphemy, that we actually look at the log in our own eye. And we're honest about how we still can be treacherous and blasphemous, lovers of money, lovers of self, using God for his benefits, but not obeying God as Lord, denying the power. It's like someone trying to lift a car to change a tire with their own strength. 
And you're like, hey, dummy, there's a jack. The power comes not from us, but from God. And if you're not experiencing God's power in your life today, and that bothers you, communicate with God. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as, as something may rise up in you this morning as you hear these words, I'm not saying it to condemn you, but to liberate you. If you're a follower of Jesus, hey, admit it, acknowledge it, confess it. He has paid and therefore has the power to forgive and cleanse and rescue. Interesting thing, though, is we were not meant to do this by ourselves. And during this pandemic, we've done it by ourselves and we've gotten weird. Y'all are kind of weird now. I don't know if you know this. And the way I know it is because I'm kind of weird now. Friends are like, hey, do you want to come over for a charcuterie board? And I'm like, but we have to watch our shows. We, those are our community now, or people on a loan. We're together with people on a loan. Man, they look hungry. Nom, nom, nom. I mean... We're kind of weird. We've, we've been communing for the last year and a half with news channels that take specific positions so they can sell you reverse mortgages and gold or get you to support puppies and homeless children, depending on what channel you watch. They're selling you something. But that's been our community, and so we get weird. And so maybe part of joining a community group is just to come together as like, we forgot how to do this, and this is way inconvenient for my shows, but I'm going to block out an hour and a half to two hours a week to get together with other human beings, and maybe stop talking about all the bad people out there and start dealing with some of the immaturity in here. So that as we come whole in Christ and us, that maybe as other neighbors and friends come in our community groups, they're able to see some power and meet the Jesus by whom we get that power. And then Brenham starts changing, not through politics or economics, but through faith and economics, Susan. But through the gospel. Not getting people to agree with us, but getting them to experience the power of the gospel, which brings about lasting change. That's the good news of the gospel. As James writes in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'm not sharing some of my flaws with you to draw attention to myself or for you to say, oh man, he is a train wreck, but for you to say, hey, so am I. Let's pray with each other. Let's hope together. Let's ask God for his power together that we might be a little different a year from now than we are today. That we might be a little bit more vulnerable to say, I am wrong, I have been wrong, I need to be made right through Christ, and for us to say, let me pray with you. For us to have an on-ramp and off-ramp. When we have an off-ramp, meaning that we have been living a life in sin or patterns of sin, there's a way out. And then when we fall off, there's a way on back to the freeway of grace. That's through life together. Hey, I'm so sorry. That stinks. Stop it. Let's pray. What would happen if the power of the gospel really became real? I think people would be worth getting up and gathering on a Sunday morning. 
I think people would be freer with their checkbooks. I think people would be more generous with their time. I think people would be leveraging their gifts so that we see other people come to faith because we are broken. Guess what? We all have had broken relationships with God, broken relationships with ourselves, broken relationships with other people, and only by the power of God and the grace of Jesus Christ are we able to experience any hope for healing, restoration, and a new life. That's the only hope we have. So those of you who are tired and weary of trying harder but continually falling on your face, be free today in Christ. Knowing the power of Christ is beginning by saying, I can't do it on my own. Every time I try to do it, it may look successful, but I'm a wreck. Or I feel great and everyone else around me is a wreck. Still a problem. But the good news is that the power of Jesus is our only hope during the times of difficulty. The power of Jesus liberates us to say no to this habit and yes to this one. The power of Jesus allows us to admit when we are straying and come back. The power of Jesus allows us in community with other believers to say, hey, I've noticed that this is going on. What's going on with you? Am I seeing that right? It seems that this is going on. Am I seeing that correctly or am I not seeing the whole story? Stephanie and I, as we did the Soul Care Institute, they came up with a saying that one of our friends, Brett, put it this way. He says, I kept bringing a $100 bill to a $10 problem. His passion and energy. And so before I would say ridiculous hyperbolic things and said to me like, whoa, strong language. I would say Christian swears. Sometimes more flowery options. But before she would correct the outcome rather than the motivation, and now if I have a strong response, she said, hey, what's going on down there? What's going on in you? What's moving? Because I, I don't know, some of you guys and gals think like I do, like the thing that made you mad three minutes ago is still percolating and snowballing to something that shouldn't make you that mad. And then you're like, whoa, over the top, man. But the power of Jesus allows us to say, well, ooh, that was a lot. What's going on in my soul? What do I need? What do I want? What's, what's bothering me? knowing that we have liberty in in Christ to be able to confess our sin and not continue on in it as like an etch-a-sketch so we can redo the drawing and do it over again, but saying like, hey, that doesn't have to own us any longer. And, And if we're struggling and it's still owning us, we get in community with other believers and we find assistance and help towards recovery because the power of Jesus is our only hope during times of difficulty. And if you don't yet know that power, that power is available to you today. If you sense, like, I have never experienced that power, merely cry out to God, God, I I don't know you in that way. Jesus, I want to know you in that way. Please forgive me. Please accept me. Please begin that work in me. For the power of Jesus Christ that rose him from the dead is the same power that's available to you today. Let's pray together.